This is Lynn Rotten from the House of Literature. I have a short message for all of you listeners. Our wonderful host and co-creator Lynn Ullmann is currently taking a break from the podcast to figure out how to proceed with her half-finished novel. But don't worry, that doesn't mean that the podcast is taking a break. We will keep the literary conversation going with exciting international guests. And to keep with the core of this podcast, which is writers talking to writers, we and Lynn Ullmann have found three great guest moderators for the coming episodes. In this episode, you will meet the Norwegian author Kjersti Annestatter Skumsvoll in conversation with the German writer Jenny Erpenbeck. You can read more about Kjersti and the two other guest moderators in our show notes. Stay safe and let the world in for our podcast. And now, back to the podcast. Empathy is, is of course, a question of changing the point of view. It always helps to connect people instead of dividing them, bringing them apart. And I think this is one of the things that, that writing can do is to share experience and to make, visit, make visible that the stranger perhaps isn't a stranger at all. And, and that also you yourself have things inside, uh, in, inside yourself that in other moments you would define as... Uh, Something like antagonist, yeah, antagonist or opponent. Naya, I think everyone has many, many characters inside him or herself. So, so you will also find in yourself things that you hate in others, or that you that you love in others. Uh, before you start hating someone, you should always look into your own inner. And and uh, I think empathy helps a lot to to connect with these experiences that we all have in com- common. You just heard the voice of the German writer Jenny Arpenbeck, who is my guest on this episode of How to Proceed. In this episode, she talks about hope and despair, time and empathy. She talks about her daily writing routines, refugees and the political climate. She talks about reading her father's diaries, and the significance of things. And as you might hear, I am not Lynn Ullmann, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is Kjersti Annesatter Skumsvoll, one of the guest moderators in this season. And I am thrilled to be talking today to Jenny Erpenbeck about reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now. The award-winning author Jenny Erpenbeck is one of the most notable, profound, and influential writers of our time. She has received numerous awards for her work, including the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize and the Hans Falada Prize. And critics often speak in terms of when, not if, she will win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Her body of work includes short stories, novellas, essays, plays, and a number of critically acclaimed novels. Visitation tells the tale of a house and the people who have lived in it and through that a hundred years of German history. The End of Days consists of five stories, each leading to a different death of the same protagonist, living in the turbulence of 20th century Europe, and Go and Gone tackles the European refugee crisis. Her latest publication is a collection of non-fiction, not a novel, 
which draws upon her 25 years of thinking and writing, a collection of intimate and explosive essays on literature, life and history. Erpenbeck's writing feels essential, sharp, transformative, alive, witty. She is the kind of author that, as soon as you finish reading a book of hers, you want to turn to the first page and reread it again and again. Her writing is about observing as much as telling, and every moment in time is a little story in itself, forcing us, her readers, to look at the ordinariness underlying the things that surround us, whether it is the borders of our countries, the streets we walk, the houses we live in, a wooden clock, a pressure cooker, or a footstool. Arpenbeck's words stay with you, a constant investigation of identity and memory. They show you the blind spots in our layered past and history. Welcome to the podcast, Janne Arpenbeck. So welcome to the podcast, Janne Arpenbeck. I have stolen my first question from your friend Bashir Sakariao, an African refugee you got to know when you were writing Go and Gone. And that is, how are you? Good? I'm fine so far. This is what I always used to say. I was wondering about that. It's hard to answer in a negative way when someone asks you in such a positive way. Especially when my African friends are asking me, I'm always saying I'm fine because also in, to English speaking people, I'm saying so because I, I know they don't really want to know how I am. <laughs> yeah. they, they just want to be polite and uh, only perhaps to some German friends, I would say, mm, not so well today because of this and that. Yeah. And, but I think it's normal like this. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but... I don't always know whether I'm good or not, but I always know whether I'm writing or not. Yeah, just now I'm I, I'm writing a new book and and I'm always I'm always very content if I'm in the work and when I have enough time for the writing and for the thinking and this is the case just now, so so I am quite happy. Yeah, so there is a connection between being happy and being in the process of writing, to you. Yeah, I think so. And uh, it's it's strange because the, the process of writing is not a happy one all the time, of course. I, w- I would even say it, it's very clearly uh, often an unhappy process, but still you, you feel good when you have time to think about all these uh, things that interest you or that, that also are problems for, for you. It's, it's a privilege to be allowed to take your time to spend it on on these uh, unhappy things yeah so it's harder not to be writing even though writing can be hard yeah yeah and where do you normally sit when you're writing yeah normally i'm sitting uh, (laughs) at my desk but just now for for this interview, I I uh, I tried uh, something new. Actually, I'm sitting in the cupboard because of the quality of the sound. <laughs> you are. And and all of a sudden, I feel so comfortable in my cupboard <laughs> that I think uh, perhaps I, I I will try to to write here. It's so nice, nicely closed, and I'm I'm on my own. 
and this is a good experience. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah, my I have a writing desk in a cupboard as well, and I like that it's so close. Like you say, that there is no distractions in there. Yeah, and no one will enter because there's nothing else. <laughs> I, I must confess, sometimes I, I sit in the kitchen when I feel too lonely at my desk. I, I will I will go to the kitchen so that my, my son is in the next room, and sometimes I see my husband passing in the in the hallway or something like that, so that I don't feel too alone. But most of the time, of course, you you need to be alone to 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 have enough peace for your thoughts. Yeah. And reading your essay, Open Bookkeeping, on the aftermath of your mother's death, people keep asking you, are you writing? Are you writing anything new yet? And I was thinking perhaps that's the way of asking a writer if they're good or not. Maybe that's what it means in a way. Yeah, it might be. And it's, it's a very normal question. And, and I think... People often have a have an idea of of a writer who's like Thomas Mann, for instance, uh, all the time sitting in, in the studio writing, and all the people around are doing the work and and the chores in your household. But <laughs> especially, I think when you are a woman, woman, it, it, it's kind of different. So in this case, when my mother died, I I, I had many things to do and I was sad as everyone has said I guess when when uh, the mother died and so you're also a normal person you have to organize things and you have a family life you have to um, whatever call the the, the plumper and uh, take out the, the dishes out of the dishwasher and whatever and and people often forget about me as a normal person. They think I'm I'm writing all the time. And of course, even when I'm writing, I'm not writing, but just thinking or reading other books. Yeah, yeah. And are you reading anything right now? Uh, I'm reading all the time. <laughs> even when you're writing? I, I have to. Also, many books that I read now... Um, are part of my research. Just now, I'm I'm writing a book placed in in the last years of the GDR. So I'm I'm reading all these East German authors and uh, also some other people's books like historians and um, one book by a professor of German studies and things like that. And also, of course, the the political things, the books about Stasi files and whatever you need for for the writing itself. And when I have a kind of like spare time mm. before I fall asleep, for instance, I'm just now reading the diaries of my father, which is very interesting because he he gave them to me in order to give me the material for my next book, which is going to be an autobiography of my father. So this is how I call it. And so in the evenings, I, I sometimes read about about me as a child in the diary of my father, which is very strange and interesting and moving, too. Oh, I, you're so lucky that you have your father's diaries to read and that you... How is it to, yeah, to revisit your childhood like that through his eyes? Of course, uh, it's like you have no, no memories uh, about this time, of course. So I was 
I was one and two and three years at this time, about which I'm now reading. And uh, so it's like a strange child, an unknown child. But I'm very moved to see how he took care for me. And my mother had had the opportunity to spend one year in Cairo. So she left when I was five months old and she came back when I was one year and five months old. So in this time, my, my father took care for me and also my, my grandmother and great-grandmother. <laughs> so I have a very strong and deep connection to my father. And it's nice to see how he is enjoying the, the time with a child for the first time in his life and how relaxed he is walking with me here and there and, and observing me what I'm what things I'm learning and doing and and it's it's nice to to see it's a, a deep love of a father and um, I'm lucky yeah and yeah I noticed that not a novel is dedicated to your father and has he meant a lot to you when it comes to your writing yeah, he, he, he was very important to me. He, he um, used to be a writer himself. He, he stopped in the years after the unification. But uh, he is a great reader too. Uh, he always provided me uh, with the books to read. In, in early age, he, he gave me yeah, so-called difficult books. But I was always happy to get these books from him. And even nowadays, we will have so many talks about literature and art and philosophy and politics. So many thoughts that I uh, wrote about in Not a Novel are based on these talks. And, and he, he was always very inspiring to me as a philosopher. He's still working about the question of values. And this is one of the most interesting questions, I think, uh, I, I, in my books, I somehow turned it into the question from which point of view you look at things or what your, the value that you put on something, on what it is based, where it comes from. And, and questions like these are connected to my father's work, of course. And, and I thought he perhaps will be also kind of be proud uh, that I tried to fix some of these thoughts also in a, in a, a non-fiction way. Yeah. Yeah, so he was important. And I was thinking about this uh, when I read about how you started writing. Uh, you write in Not a Novel that the fall of the wall and the collapse of the East German state without this experience of transition from one world to the very other, I probably never would have started writing. So I was wondering what outside events means to you uh, when it comes to starting writing and when it comes to uh, writing these days in a year that's been marked by the pandemic and lockdowns. Do outside events affect your writing? I think they, of course, do outside events in, in fact uh, writing, but it's uh, more a long-term influence in my eyes. So it's not like seeing something and going home and writing a novel. So it was a kind of a process for me to experience the fall of the wall and then to experience it. It, it was a long time. It was like uh, seeing how the city of Berlin changed, 
how the the cultural life changed and to get used to go into West Berlin as a as a normal thing it, it, it was new to us uh, it was in the beginning it was an adventure then it became more normal but never completely <laughs> not even now um, mm. then you you would see all the tiny changes and also the big ones like people losing their jobs being forced to do something else than they before did there were so many discussions so it was a long process it was not was not just about the fall of the wall and um it took me years to to realize that something that i was very familiar to me is gone for forever mm. And uh, I always used to say you are not only missing the good things when you're missing something, you're also missing the bad things as something that you were familiar with or that you knew so well. The, the process was also a process of learning the new rules, the rituals, the uh, vocabulary was different. Uh, you, you will always recognize an East German when he's saying, Kaufhalle instead of supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are some certain East German words. So the, the process is, happens outside, but the most important things for the writing happen inside. So now the situation, let's say I'm, I'm not missing anything. Of course, I, I would like to go to the cinema from time to time, but uh, there are happening so many things in my mind that I'm quite well entertained, so to say. Yeah. And and also not only entertained, but also busy. So so there's a lot happening inside of me. And, hmm. and so I'm not bored. And talking about these outside events and the fall of the wall and you started, how you started writing, because there was one scene that I've been thinking a lot about in Not a Novel where you write about this man coming with his car from the West and he's handing out gift paper to people in the East, in your neighborhood, as I understood it. And this does something to you as a young woman walking there. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, at least for me, it was never a nice feeling to be the one in need. In a way... The man was was nice, and of course he wanted to show the the East Berlin people that uh, kind of friendship, I guess, or of solidarity or whatever, because we we hadn't Western money at this time, but I didn't want to be the 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 one who who is longing for this shiny Western wrapping paper. In a way, it makes you smaller to be dependent from someone. Mm. And I didn't want to be dependent from the West because I wasn't. I didn't feel like, you know, I, I, I didn't need the Western wrapping paper. I liked my Eastern, Eastern wrapping paper <laughs> as much. It's a question of pride, of keeping your pride, I think. Yeah, and I was also thinking about alienation. And I thought about this quote by the American poet Marianne Moore where she says that alienation produces loneliness for which mm -hmm. solitude is the cure and I thought about the solitude of writing you starting to write after this and uh, 
that's the solitude of writing can be a cure for that loneliness and alienation. The, the, I think the, the problem uh, lies in the situation of, of East Germany in the beginning of this uh, so-called peaceful revolution was the idea of changing our own system to replace the government by a better government, but to keep the country as it was. And only after some months there was a change in mind. And, uh, uh, and so I think the, the idea of the Westerners that the first of our ideas must have been we want to become West was wrong. Mm. Or for many people that were the first ones to, to go on the street or to, to organize demonstrations, for many of them, it, it, it was not the idea to become West, but to change our system and to stay uh, uh, a, a different country. So um, this has also a lot to do with this feeling of alienation and of uh, being afraid of feeling dependent what we what we didn't want to be. Yeah, and this again led you to writing and you talk about this in one of your Bamberg lecture, how as paradoxical as it may be, but the impossibility of expressing what happens to us in words is what pushes us toward writing. Whenever I have not been able to understand something, have not been able to capture it in words, that's when I started writing. Mm -hmm. So was it a process of trying to understand? There are two aspects uh, that that make you that make you write. I think one aspect is that you cannot explain the real things that matter when you are speaking, which was the case uh, with me when I was younger, and and even now it's uh, I, I feel still the same in a way. And the other thing is in in the process of writing itself that you have a kind of an idea where you where it will lead you, but you're also you're also trying something all the time. So so all of a sudden things will appear in your writing that surprise yourself, and and you will see that you come closer to the thing that you want to describe but perhaps from completely other side than you expected. When I start writing, I, of course, I, I uh, want to, in a way, I want to get rid of the ghosts and you never manage to get rid of the ghosts by writing. This is one idea. <laughs> but um, you understand better where the difficulties come from. And I also like a lot to, to put questions to myself and also to the readership because many things uh, cannot be answered. They are just they questions and, and writing is a good way to, to fix at least these questions. Yeah, because you write that there's a kernel of truth that you don't want to think all the way through. That's interesting. Sometimes, I don't know, perhaps it's, it's with you the same. Sometimes uh, you write down a sentence that in the common sense is, is a bit wrong or the, the comparison is wrong or whatever is wrong. And at the same time, when you try to change it and make it right, 
it will not work. And this is interesting that sometimes the truth is between the words or between the sentences and, and even a sentence that is not really right can be right. Mm. And the language is so so rich in allowing things to resound without being named in the words. And, and this is interesting. Isn't this bit what makes writing so interesting? That you don't know what's true when you're writing it, but you, you're sort of searching, like you said, and suddenly something that might seem false can have truth in it. Yeah, it's, it's strange. Yeah. It's strange. I think this is a good time for the question from the Canadian poet Moes Surani. He says, On my office shelf in Toronto, I have two pieces of the Berlin Wall that I bought this summer. They arrived with a certificate of authenti authentication. Authentic authentication. Authentication. Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe they're really from the Berlin Wall? Does it matter? It gives me a strange feeling to glance at it as I work on a project where a lonely man views the fall of the wall as a catastrophe. Or more simply, does imagination need the veracity of the real to have importance? Now, yeah, I, I think this this is uh, an interesting question and not so easy to answer. Um, of course, uh, a thing, what, whatever it is, can be something like a time capsule and uh, can allow you to, to travel in time and, and to make other presence, historic presence, uh, your presence for, for, for a moment. But as far as, as the piece from the Berlin Wall is, is concerned, I, I don't believe in, in certificates, especially when they were made in order to sell. But yeah, perhaps it's, it's really a piece of the wall or not. But the point is the intensity of, of the connection to this other time that you want to um, achieve. I think that intensity cannot be bought. It's, it's the opposite of something that you can buy. In, in, in my opinion, I, I think the, the veracity has more to do with one's own experience. For instance, if you if you spend some time somewhere, if you if you you know collect a very simple thing, it means more than something like like all these heartless souvenirs that you can buy everywhere. And in times like these, the Corona times, when you when you cannot travel and you cannot collect something here and there your own, for for me, um, it made clear that. Uh, the imagination itself can serve as a museum. And perhaps you don't even need uh, the things to dive in, in another time or to remember something. Telling a story is a museum itself. And, and also what I do at the moment is a bit like a museum. Perhaps uh, because of that, I am thinking a lot about memory and how to keep memory. My, my my house is full of things. It is. I'm a collector. I was thinking about this reading your books because there are many things in them. So I was thinking, do you have these uh, small props in your or things on your desk and in your apartment? No, my apartment is full of, of souvenirs, but not bought ones, things that I found myself or took somewhere. And I always liked the idea that 
the things that are sharing time with me in my room, they also mean that there are different layers of time in my room present. It's like uh, making the, the space of time wider. And I always like this a lot because I think it's it's your birth happens in one moment, but there are so many other times in which you could have been born. And in a way, they are present in the things. But someone who is a collector, of course, starts early to think about what will happen to all the things when he or she is gone one day. And so what I always try is to um, get used to the thought that these things will go back to the world one day. And uh, what I really would like to do is become independent from my uh, relation to these things and to to have the real thing in, in the room of ideas of what I write about. And but writing about things, when you write about uh, the collected works of Goethe or these buttons with the royal eagle or... Do you visualize these things, writing about them? <laughs> if you mean the pressure cooker. <laughs> yeah, the pressure cooker. Which the pressure cooker <laughs> is my favorite thing. And the good news is that he's still living over Earth. <laughs> he hasn't been buried. No, he hasn't been buried. I, I couldn't do so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was an Eureka moment to me when I thought that well, it's not only the characters changing, even things can change. The pressure cooker that changes from garbage to something that you have to bury in the back of, well, in the back of your car, it changes into something that you have to hold a funeral for and then back into a pressure cooker again. <laughs> yeah, I, I deeply believe in the, in the soul of things. When I write about things that, that are precious to me, even when they are not precious at all, of course, I, I, I see them or I have them in mind or I don't, I, I know how they look like. And I think it's, it's you, you can invent things, of course, but uh, the, the main invention is the, to put all the things that you have in mind and that are kind of concrete things uh, to make a choice and to put it together. This is the main invention. And beyond this, you, you don't need so much invention. And, and it will be fine if it is very authentic, so to say. I think the things that happen to, to be your things in the time of your life are, they tell you something. So, so if you can give the story to the readers, it will be fine. Yeah. And you, talk about, you talked about how things can be time capsules and your novels to me they are like time machines and you bring the past into the present it's like Doris Kaplan she's sitting in that closet peeing right now so you use these historical events and in one of your essays you write about how as a child you loved ruins unfinished things and dirt so I was thinking about wondering if you can tell a bit about how and why you use these historical events and people in yeah. to attach your fiction to in some way. It always interested me to look at things that are out of focus. It's much more interesting, for instance, to to look if if you are in a concert to look at someone who's not playing at the moment, 
how he or she is waiting for uh, for the next uh, passage uh, to be played uh, and and how they spend time you know this is interesting things that are in the in the background or besides or are not looked at normally this is where you really can see something and and learn something uh, yeah from the things that are not in focus Mm-hmm. And then you, as a writer, lift them into the light. And now I'm thinking about the refugees that you write about in Go and Gone. Mm-hmm. Especially, I really like the scene where the Richard, the professor, he asks one of the refugees, Usarubo, he's asked if there's anything he would like to do. And you say that for only the wish would mean that he has managed to buy him back to life, to make someone want to read again. The rest will be fine. And that's what you do uh, with these characters, in my opinion, that you give them hope, people that we are blind to, and by asking them questions and giving them wishes. And his answer really surprised me. He answers that he wants to play the piano. So I wonder, when you're writing, uh, do you know on beforehand what his answer will be, or do they sometimes surprise you as well? (laughs) Uh, With this book, it was uh, really like... um putting my own surprises into the book. This was an answer that was really given to me and I, I didn't expect it. And I, I thought the book will be good when my experiences can be shared with the readers. Because I thought in in a way I was an object of observation myself. So what can I be surprised by? And why is it like this? Why shouldn't someone wish to to play the piano and what does it tell about me that I'm surprised by this wish? Because we have we have certain expectations of what is needed by refugees, like money or drugs or whatever, women. And then all of a sudden someone appears <laughs> wishing to play the piano. It tells more about me that I'm surprised than about him, you know? Yeah. And that's interesting. And, and there's a... It's always a process of uh, reflecting and being reflected. Mm. Yeah, and we talk about things changing, characters changing, but uh, as a reader, we change. And as a writer, too, in my experience. So I wonder, what is that like for you? Do you feel like writing a novel changes you? Um, in a way, yes. I, I, I can only tell how it is now because I'm in the process of writing and for for the book I'm working on now is I looked into my diaries for the first time, the diaries from 30 years ago. That's very brave. Yeah. <laughs> or do you have empathy with the person 30 years ago? How is it to meet that person now? Yeah, it's, also, I, I was shocked that I had forgotten almost everything. And if there wouldn't be a diary, everything would be would have been gone. And I, I never had a survey about myself in these in the course of these years, over the years. And I understood many things much better now. How my beginning was, how my uh, where my kind of character or personality comes from. <laughs> It's uh, in a way it was a strange young girl I read about, 
And in the same moment, I could see that I'm still the same. And to reflect about such a thing like your own past is uh, changes you. I, I cannot, you cannot put it into words. I couldn't say, I, you know, I'm three centimeters bigger or smaller now. You cannot measure it, the, the change. You cannot even put it into words, but... Uh, it's 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 a long process of grow up and i'm i'm still working on it and do you still keep a diary i have an, a nice book it's a diary for 10 years so you will have one day and 10 lines and you can write down a few notes in in one line for one year and the next year you will take the next line on the same day so you can see what you did the, the very day five years ago. Okay. And and I, I always uh, write down um, something like looking back what kind of a year it was at the end of the year. So each year I will write a summary of the year. This is also a kind of a diary. And we're getting close to the end of 2020. Do you know what you will write about this year? This year was a very special one. <laughs> In a way, I, w I was grateful that this year let me become the person I was many years ago again in terms of not being stressed anymore, not to have to travel anymore. Since a long time, I have never had so much inner peace in my life. And, and this was very special to me. And I think this, in a way, the, the year saved me. Yeah. or made me myself again because it's um, being a writer only the half of it is sitting at home mm. but the other half is traveling making events with audiences meeting your translators and so on there, there's a lot of, of work connected to the actual work of writing and in a way the more successful you become which is of course a, a great privilege but the more successful you, you become, the more work is beyond the actual writing. I felt for the first time that the rest of the world moves in the same tempo, the same pace as me. That before I felt like everyone was moving much faster than me. And I was just <laughs> trying to keep up. And now <laughs> it felt like we're in the same lane or, yeah, you know what I mean. Without all the travels and other things than writing. Yeah, and 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 what I think is is also, also yeah, for some people it might be the 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 real horror to to stay at home or to to be condemned to to just walk instead of traveling uh, to Honolulu. But what I thought is a different kind of communication is starting and. Uh, for instance, I started to go for walks with my friends, and this is so nice. You are you are in motion. <laughs> you 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 see something nice. You will walk, and also here on the on the square where I'm living, I would for the first time ever I I would see um, parents playing with their children, like playing ball and uh, games and things like that. It seemed to me like uh, going back to the like, like modest kind of entertainments, hmm. which I liked very much because uh, I, I'm absolutely convinced that you don't need to travel 
to um, experience something. For someone who said that when nothing happened, everything can happen. And yeah. Because your mind needs sort of that nothing happens to be able to let the thoughts wander. Uh, yeah. Now, yeah, it's it's a different kind of seeing that is starting again. You uh, everything becomes slower, and you you are not stressed to to play chess, for instance. We we are playing chess all the all the days, <laughs> my <laughs> husband and me, and you are just having time. You are not losing time. You are having time, and you spend it on something that you are doing with the ones that you feeling close to. Mm. Which is the best thing you can do with your time? Yeah, and do you feel that uh, writing changes your concept of time? What does writing do to the feeling of time? I decided to to write slower than I ever wrote. I'm a bit afraid to tell you, but <laughs> but I, uh, I I wrote the go and gone in one year, and also the end of days in one year. Really? And yeah, and. This was not healthy. It was it was okay, and it had to do with the situation as a go and gone with the situation of the refugees, and uh, the end of days. I had thought about the two years before I started writing it, so the the thoughts were already there, and so it was okay. Mm. But um, of course, it was a very very dense time of writing. And now I decided to to allow myself to write a chapter a week, mm. which is much more comfortable, if you want to call it comfortable, because it's still work. So, but I take my time to think carefully, to to really dive into the chapter, to really look into the books that I need for for writing it, and uh, you know, rethink uh, things and. The rhythm of writing is much more relaxed. Uh, also, when when uh, writing is always something that stresses you in a way. Also, hmm. so what does that typical day of writing look like to you in 2020? When do you start in the morning after breakfast or? Normally, I start at 12, <laughs> and and 12 is not right after the breakfast. <laughs> Uh, 12 is uh, after having had breakfast and you know take a shower and so on um, and before I realized what I what I was doing in the mornings I just did it and and only now in the slow time I, I'm reflecting on this I'm doing every morning something that really matters for our household <laughs> things that that are waiting for me. So when I sit down at the desk, I want to be free from all the duties. You have to be done with it. Yeah, now the duties have yeah. to be already done so that I'm free for the real work. But 12 o'clock is good. Yeah. Yeah, 12 o'clock is good. And and I also allowed myself, uh, perhaps it's also because I'm I'm getting older, I allowed myself to have a weekend yeah. So that means we would we will drive to the garden and I will visit my my father, go for a walk, see some friends, as many friends as are allowed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How does the feeling of time feels when you're writing? Does it pass fast or 
I feel like time passes very differently if I'm sitting writing emails compared to when I'm writing uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fiction. Yeah. It depends on the on the emails, of course. Also, there are, I, I have uh, two good friends I'm writing, let's say, letters to via email. So one is a Canadian writer, Brian Brett, and and the other one is uh, it's, it's funny, but, but uh, the, the feminist Alice Schwarz. I don't know if you know her. She she she's wonderful. She's in her seventies now, and she's such a lively lady. Yeah, these are the two persons I, I really write letters to, mails that can be called, called letters. Writing a book, book is different, of course. Uh, there's a moment in which you can start in a good way. I don't know if it's uh, for you the, the, the same. There's uh, Sometimes I feel very, very good when bringing things in order and doing this and that because I, I can see that the beginning is coming closer and then I will sit down at 2 p.m. and write a chapter. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes, sometimes it's like this and sometimes it's like sitting down and I think I'm completely stupid. I was so genius in my youth and now I'm old. And, uh, and then I start writing and it's horrible and it's bad. <laughs> and then these days are difficult. And I know I will need another two or three days uh, to make something good out of the bed that I wrote. Also, this is a way of, of writing. So, And do you show it to other people while you're writing or do you wait until it's done? With this book now, the, um, a chapter will be something like three, four, five, six pages, sometimes ten pages. And when I've got the feeling that the chapter is more or less done, I will read it to my husband first. Yeah. And he's the best critic a writer can have. <laughs> he he uh, actually he's a conductor, but but he has very he's a very good reader. Yeah. And he's a very good critic, so he will always he's not afraid of me. That's also very good. So he can tell me everything, and I will just go to work. <laughs> yeah. And he tells it in a way that I can deal with. Also, this is important. Yes. His critique is not about, also often not, not about words or tiny things, but uh, concerning the idea of some something or the character of a person in general. Uh, one time he would say to me, uh, you haven't been loyal to your character. Yeah. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Or uh, one time he, he said, uh, I don't know, but in this passage, you, you did too much art and something must be wrong when you try to hide it by so much art. Yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. Uh, like so, yeah, yeah, and I think this is very, very, um, very, very helpful to have some, someone like this on your side. Yeah, and you read it out loud to him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's good for the sound, you know. And he's a musician; he will also listen to the rhythm of it and to the to the movement, so to say. And yeah, so he mm. prefers to hear it instead of seeing it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to say that after reading uh, your three novels, *Visitation*. 
and uh, the end of days and go and gone one after the other. Uh, I wrote a word on the wall above my desk in the cupboard uh, where I always write down <laughs> important things. Oh. And, the word <laughs> and the word I wrote was empathy. That's the word that sort of stuck with me after reading your novels because you invoke so much empathy in the reader through your characters and through your language. Um, as an example, I wrote down uh, from Visitation how the young Soviet soldiers standing in the room of the house they mm -hmm. occupied and he looks into the mirror on the closet and he doesn't know about the German woman hiding on the other side. And mm -hmm. the reader knows that something is going to happen, something will be broken. And But you managed to give us empathy for both of them. So I mm -hmm. was wondering, do you have to empathize with your characters when you're writing about them? Yeah, um, especially with this uh, scene, it interested me uh, to tell the story in a way that you cannot say who's the, the winner and who's the loser. Mm. And uh, this has also something to do with the thing that you that you mentioned in the beginning, that I um, like to pay attention to things that are not in the focus. To uh, to change a point of view is always something that that and and uh, empathy is is of course a question of changing the point of view. It always helps to connect people instead of dividing them bringing them apart and I think this is one of the things that, that writing can do is to share experience and to make, visit, make visible that the stranger perhaps isn't a stranger at all and, and that also you yourself have things inside, uh, in, inside yourself that in other moments you would define as uh, something like antagonist, yeah, antagonist or opponent. Now, yeah, I think everyone has many, many characters inside him or herself. So, so you will also find in yourself things that you hate in others, mm. or that you that you love in others. Uh, before you start hating someone, you should always look into your own inner and and uh, I think empathy helps a lot to to connect with these experiences that we all have in com common yeah so even writing about others you have to invest something of yourself Did, this reminds me of a sentence from one of your Bamberg lectures where you write that there must be a point of entry one that is unfamiliar but nonetheless leads you to yourself hmm in visitation, you can see this quite well. That, of course, I I became also the characters that I don't like so much as a private person. For instance, the the architect or the architect's wife, uh, who are quite successful and and happily living in the Nazi time, they are not people that I would like as friends. But in a way, they are okay in themselves. And only when you look at the situation, the political situation in Germany at this time, and I allowed to, to look at the situation by telling all the other stories that happen, are happening outside of their life, only in, in the um, 
if you if you have the wider perspective, you will see that there's something wrong. If you look at the persons, they are okay. The the idea in visitation is to be hundred percent with the person that I write about in every chapter, but to step back and look at the whole story in the end, and then also the 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 personal characters you you can see uh, all of a sudden in a different light and can uh, perhaps you 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 will see them differently from the first time when you encountered them in the in the chapter mm. i was thinking about not only how the characters invoke empathy but also the language with sentences like this is from go and gone is there really not a single place on earth where i can lie down and sleep or where does a person go when he does not know where to go? Mm -hmm. And I've started to think about what you're in touch with when the language itself is empathetic. And I also thought about a previous podcast in this series where George Saunders talks about the ungentleness of Donald Trump's language. How the language of fiction, is it possible to bring it over to other parts of our society is it i think the the um in a way the language is a surface and is something that is made by things that are not outspoken or not written down uh, and empathy is one of these uh, things that are in the in the in the ground i'm sure that that you can uh or I hope at least that the reader can can understand the feeling that made you write exactly these words and sentences. What I what I try to do is uh, to pass things that impressed me to the readers as they were. Yeah, but without telling them what they should feel like. Yeah, you know that <laughs> it's it's about freedom. Reading is is. Uh, <laughs> This freedom to to feel, and there's also a question that I, um, you know, you wanted me to have a question for my yes, the question to Edouard Louis. Often, writing is a kind of answer to physical or mental violence, contempt, arrogance. It's a way to speak to the other side, to connect, to make people understand what we all have in common, instead of hating each other. But what? if the other side is not willing to listen or to read, or if their problems are based on a situation that really cannot be solved just by words. Mm. That's very so, good. And, yeah, and this is this is my own experience uh, with the go and gone. Yeah. In a way, I thought perhaps there will also be some people in the audiences um, when I had readings who are not, let's say, friends of the refugees hmm. and who want to discuss or uh, share their point of view or explain why they are hating uh, foreigners or whatever. And I never, ever had someone like this in one of my readings. So I could see that only people that are already interested in the issue only these people would come to the reading and pay for a reading, you know. Yeah. So uh, how, uh, what can you do not to lose, 
not to lose the the so-called other side. Mm. How, what can you do to really connect to people? And of course, it's it's always a tricky thing because I I wouldn't like to make friends with the right wing people in Germany. But I'm also convinced that when the talks and when the when the will to exchange opinions when when this attempt is uh, given up then the, the the gap in the society will be a big problem for the future mm. so as uh, in, in the very moment when you stop talking and when you when you stop honestly uh, discussing um, it's the beginning of it's the beginning of violence i would say yes. if, if the words are not enough anymore uh, violence enders mm. and do you find that it's harder to connect or reach the other's part with the conversation when writing about contemporary issues like you do in go and gone compared to writing about historical events historical issues no i i wouldn't say so uh only with the go and gone it was so obvious that that many people were missing, you know. Yeah. Many people that had different ideas were missing. With the other books, uh, it's not so obvious, you know. Uh, and and uh, interesting is that there, there is one bookstore in Dresden which was yeah in discussion in the last time because the lady who's running the bookstore um, is kind of connected to the right-wing literary scene. And they they would invite me with uh, visitation, and they would invite me with end of days, and they wouldn't invite me with go and gone. Mm, I see. And so so uh, with the book with the books that are dealing with uh, things in the 20th century, they are connecting point for um, more people, and it's not not such a burning topic. Mm. You can be sad about the killing of the Jews, and at the same time, you don't like the refugee that is passing down the street. You have this lovely text called Hope that I would love for you to read, which is about how hope binds your family together. Okay, it's in the collection, not a novel. Also, hope. When my great-grandfather was young, he hoped that by changing his name from Gmora to Brown, he could make his life go more smoothly. When my great-grandmother was a widow, she didn't allow her late husband's brother into her home when he unexpectedly arrived from somewhere near Kishinev. She was a friendly person. The only explanation I can think of for her unfriendliness is hope that her children would have an easier time under Hitler without their Jewish relatives. When my grandmother was a young woman, she hoped to return home from a Soviet prison camp to her three children. When my grandmother was deported to the prison camp, my great-grandmother hoped her daughter would come home. When my mother was a small child, she perched on my great-grandmother's lap and hoped the bombs would fall on other houses. When the family had to leave East Prussia, 
My great-grandmother hoped she would survive the journey with her three small grandchildren. When my mother was stuck on a crowded platform outside the departing train, while my great-grandmother was already sitting inside the train with my uncle and aunt, my great-grandmother hoped the Red Army soldier would manage to pass the small girl over the heads of all the waiting people and through the window of the train before it departed. When my grandmother returned from the prison camp, she hoped she would remember the names of her three children. When my mother was a child, she hoped no one would notice that she had broken the rules and jumped over the creek and fallen in. But when she undressed that evening, her underwear was green with algae. When my mother was a young girl, she hoped Sundays would pass more quickly. When my mother was pregnant for the second time, she hoped that she would have the child this time and that it would be healthy. When my mother was a mother, she hoped nothing would happen to me. When I was a small child and my mother was away on a trip, I hoped my father would let me wear my blue pleated skirt on an ordinary weekday, even though it was supposed to be reserved for the flag ceremony. My father didn't know much about those things. When my grandmother's birthday rolled around, she hoped she'd be able to finish baking the bee sting cake in time for her party. When I was a child, I once hid in the wooden chest and hoped someone would notice I was missing. When my grandmother traveled with us, she always hoped her suitcase could be closed. When my great-grandmother was a very old woman, she hoped her daughter, who lived with her, wouldn't be so impatient with her. After my mother had gotten divorced for the second time, my grandmother hoped some nice men would give this difficult woman another chance. After my mother had gotten divorced for the second time, she hoped to find another man who wouldn't cheat on her. When I was a young woman, I hoped my mother wouldn't cry the day I moved out. When my mother's third husband was on his deathbed, I hoped he wouldn't die. After he died, I hoped my mother wouldn't kill herself. When I had my child, my mother hoped the birth would be easier for me than my birth had been for her. When I became a mother, I hoped things would always go well for my child. When my son was older, my mother hoped she would live long enough to see him start school. When my grandmother waved goodbye to me, I hoped it was just an ordinary goodbye, like all the ones in the previous years. On Christmas, I hoped our son wouldn't notice that my father was Santa Claus. When I heard that my mother had had a stroke and fallen into a coma, I hoped the doctors were wrong, that she had only fainted. When I sat next to my mother's bed as she was dying, I hoped that this day hadn't really come yet, that it was still two days ago. After my mother died, I went to Switzerland for work. While everyone was talking behind me, I sat alone on a terrace with a view of the mountains. I hoped that up there I was close enough to my mother to see her. Hope was always a sort of glue that held my family together 
Some of my family's hopes were fulfilled, others were not. That was beautiful, thank you. And it has meant a lot to me reading your novels and your essays and hearing your thoughts on writing here today. So thank you so much for talking to us. <laughs> uh, thank you, I hope it is okay. And I hope my the, the, the new studio that I founded uh, uh, served its purpose. <laughs> yeah. So now we know where you, where you will be sitting tomorrow, writing in your cupboard. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think yeah. so. <laughs> Perfect. Uh. Thank you so much, Jenny Erpenbeck, for participating in this podcast, How to Proceed. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Tune in for our next episode of How to Proceed, where you will meet the French writer Edouard Louis. And please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Yanni and Shashti talked about. <laughs>